We, once again, are rolling. Thank you for listening, everybody, to Modern Guilt. This is episode 27. We're now officially in the 27 Club, but we're not gonna die yet, I hope. Although, maybe the same can't be said for our guest, Rod Olsman, who is uh, joining us from Florida. And while that might be a grim uh, possibility to identify, we were just talking before we started uh, recording about the state of things uh, over in the States. Um, so in all seriousness, like our heart goes out to, to everybody over there dropping like flies. And we hope that the situation gets um, reined in sooner rather than later. So we've got a little bit of uh, a story that we're going to flesh out and dive into for this episode. Um, so first, before we do that, though, I'll um, offer a little preface for i suppose how we got rod on the podcast so damon and i as we've mentioned in previous episodes we actually dropped a little teaser for this last week i think yeah yeah we did we've been um we've been following uh, what is proving to be a pretty interesting (laughs) company called GameStock. um and for better or worse we're um we're waist deep in game shares. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or sure. May- maybe I'm waist deep. Damon's like chin deep. Oh, buddy, I can't um, even see the surface. <laughs> and Rod has been um, the only uh, stable thing on Twitter and re- and Reddit, providing us hope uh, for the future um, of this company and our shares. You're a shining so light, Rod. I- Rod is quickly becoming like a sort of. Um, what do you call it? Actually, a lightning rod, <laughs> if you'll excuse the pun, um, for GameStop uh, stock enthusiasts. Yeah. And so we re- reached out to him on Twitter and we thought we'd just bring him on and let him talk his talk. We're going to talk about the market in general. We're going to talk about the sort of underlying dynamics at play that are making this an interesting story. And then we're going to talk about hopefully sort of like what's in store um, from Rob's perspective. So. That's a pretty fucking long-winded introduction. I'm sorry, Rod. Why don't you introduce yourself uh, in a way that I can't introduce you? Very good, Hayden. Well, thanks, Hayden and Damon, for having me. Uh, waist deep, you guys. Uh, I've been in it since 2017 initially. Uh, $19, actually, in late 2017. So interestingly enough, my first purchase of 100 shares, we just, last Monday one prior got back to the cost basis on those shares um so i've been interested in the company for a long time you know to give an interesting little uh personal note i'm i'm 31 and the first stock i ever bought actually was gamestop in 2004 or 5 i was in my early teens and at the time i think securities laws are pretty similar throughout the world but you need to be 18 to actually make the investments yourself so my father had opened up uh, custodial accounts, I think is the term that we use domestically. I don't know if it's the same um, abroad, but uh, I would say, I said to him, um, I'm at the time was a gamer, very much interested in video games. And, and every time I went to the mall, the GameStop and the electronics boutique, they were always very busy. Uh, and we'll get into the story of, of the two. I know it's EV games over there, but um, I bought the stock, you know, through my father at the time and made some money. And I sold around the time the electronics boutique acquisition occurred. So just interestingly enough, I've always, in a way, been connected to GameStop from my investing life. I was not invested in it from 2007 aught through 17. So there was a gap there, but uh, I've always been interested in it. Um, give you a little background on myself. So 
as I mentioned, I'm 31. I have uh, studied a lot of financy type things in my life. I have an undergrad degree in accounting with a, an entrepreneurship concentration, and I have an MBA in competitive strategy. So uh, from a just formal education standpoint, this type of stuff is a bit up my alley. And, and it's, uh, like you said, I, I kind of found myself uh, just sucked into the story of it. It's, you know, we'll talk about it, but it's just been such a crazy ride for this particular stock for a variety of reasons. Um, it's, it's most certainly one of the most hated stocks in the entire world. <laughs> I think it's safe to say. Oh, you love to hear it. Yeah, I can feel that to a degree after today. Um, I guess, yeah, we can touch on the, the ups and downs of it later. So what got you into it in 2017? Yeah, 2017. So I was clearly early to the party and, and was wrong. I think a lot of investors in the last few years viewed GameStop as a prospective value play. And at the time, clearly, uh, I was early to the party because at the time it seemed like based on the revenues of the company, based on what I thought were the expectations going forward, it would um, you know, it would eventually stabilize at the end of the console cycle, which it's upon us, even though the November figure that came out in the earnings release last week wasn't great. It was you know, plus 16.5% comparable sales, but it tells us that the bottom is in. Um, October was the last month of negative comparable results year over year. And now you know, we're in the midst of COVID. We're in the midst of new consoles. I was very fortunate to get an order of an Xbox Series X, as a matter of fact, on Saturday amid the complete chaos that was GameStop's botched effort to <laughs> attract foot traffic. We can talk about that a bit. But um, no, I always viewed it as a value play. I think there's a big misunderstanding about this idea that you know, video games will be purely digitized and there will be zero need for any physical gameplay. Um, and you look at a lot of the data that's out there and there's a lot of misunderstandings where people conflate things like mobile, they conflate things like PC, which are close to 100% digital. But then when you look at the pie, you need to really segment it out. And I think a lot of people don't do that. And it's led to this um, you know, this, this story that it's, it's blockbuster and uh, there's no need for it anymore. And, you know, it's, it's all going digital. And I think there's a lot more nuance to it than that for folks like me who've dug very, very, very deep. I've probably dug all the way to China by now. Yeah. So f for those of our listeners who aren't, um, I guess, typically interested in, in the stock market or, or finance, I thought it might be useful for us to provide a bit of uh, a broader or more general context, um, first of all, to sort of lay down like a, a foundation of understanding so that the, the story makes a lot more sense and people can gather a, a little bit more meaning from it. So I thought it might be useful to, and we'll get your view on it as well, Rod and Damon, please, you know, jump in at any point, cut me off. But to just summarize the sort of state of things not only um, in sort of recent years, but also post COVID. So we're in this scenario where for, you know, the greater part of the last decade now, uh, brick and mortar retail stores in, in big cities have largely been declining as more and more business moves online. Um, we have the, like a greater globalization of the workforce. So we have the offshoring of jobs. Um, we have a far less dependence on physical retail spaces. I don't know what the situation's like in the in the States, Rod, but in major cities in Australia, you walk down uh, former main streets or these um, former retail hubs and you see 
a third of the stores um, shuttered and available for lease, which speaks, I think, to the broader sort of um, almost urban rot that we seem to be experiencing in this like late stage capitalism era. Um, and obviously all of this has been greatly exacerbated by COVID. Um, the global lockdown has seen people all across the world unable to leave their homes and go out and shop. So um, that's enhanced this movement of sort of like retail to the digital space. Um, and it might seem like I'm stating the obvious here, but I thought that for people who you know haven't thought about this prior, it might be nice to to start painting this picture. Um, so yeah, if I could hate just, Rod, just add kind of a little bit of a yeah, line of thinking there. I think everyone's known you know, that e-commerce uh, as a share of all retail consumption is and has been rising. I mean, really, mm-hmm. since Amazon launched, of course, they're ubiquitous, at least in domestically. Um, but they were the harbinger, I think, of e-commerce really gaining share at the expense of, of physical brick-and-mortar retail. And that's been going on now for a couple of decades. But it was a step function change with COVID. And I don't think anyone expects that it's going to go backwards, while maybe the step function up will lead to the growth rate being minimal for the next year, mm-hmm. it, it just accelerated an existing trend. And um, can I just stop you for one mm-hmm. moment, Rod? Sorry. Can you please define step function for me? I'm not familiar with that. phrase. Yeah. Yeah. So like think, you know, we, we had a line. Um, let me let's let's use imagery here. Yeah, the pen and paper is coming out. So, so you know, we had we had a line. Right. So this this was yep. e-commerce going up. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the, what I would show the step function would be like we just jumped. Right. So we yes, jumped okay. up Great. Uh, mm-hmm. from where we were on that line. and. Biden jump, I believe. Yeah, I've seen it's that. I've seen that one. Alternate phrase. <laughs> but, but I think what you're laying yeah. out, it's, it, it's been going on. Um, COVID made it worse. And no one knows exactly what it's going to look like in the future. But I think that what we can in, infer is that consumers want an experience if they're going to physically be engaging with a retailer. They're not going to just go in to pick up their widget or their whatever. They're, they'd rather just buy that in the mail if so. If they're getting some sort of non- goods value from the employee experience, the store experience, whatever it might be, then there's a reason for them to go out and and shop. And I think that's very important. And it does dovetail with GameStop for sure. Mm. Um, Damon, is there anything else you'd like to add in this regard before we um, move on? Yeah. In terms of, I guess, sort of like a more macro thing of everything um, starting to shift online. uh, It is... So, you know, like without diving into the whole blockbuster thing, which is, I feel something that would be better to focus on later. um, I guess that's what a lot of people are looking at right now is the fact that there's been so many, uh, you know, people since Amazon, especially during COVID, just shifting completely to shopping online. It's, yeah, that's one of the things I think a lot of people are going to be curious about is whether or not that's going to be like a long-term trend or you're going to see... um, you know, people returning back to the whole brick and mortar uh, establishments. I was just down at um, our EB Games right before this. Yeah, doing a bit of field work. And I'll say... Very nice. Hope you bought something. Yeah. Doing a bit of DD. Um, but, and it was, you know, there was a number of people in there. I think in a weird way, people are still nostalgic about going into brick and mortar stores. You still see threads every now and again pop up about, you know, like, oh, remember Blockbuster and going on with your family? You'll never have it that good again. 
Um, and there's always kind of like a weird place for that, I would imagine, even if it's a novelty, whether or not that is going to make up a $20 billion company in future, um, you know, <laughs> probably remains to be seen. But that's, that's a good yeah. point about the nostalgia, because I think you hit it that it's a different experience depending on wh what you're doing. Like if you're, I don't know what the comparable retailer in, in Australia or New Zealand would be, but domestically it would be like the Walmart, a general merchandiser. You're not going to get any any frills, you're going to get the best cost as a consumer, as a maybe a lower end, middle you know, tier consumer, you're going to go in there and it's cheap and it gets me what I need. I'm not going in there to chit chat with the employees, but that's something at least domestically at GameStops. And I, I would presume at EB Games, if you're interested in gaming, pop culture, what have you, you can go in there. And even if you don't necessarily buy the games right there, then and there, you, you can take away some value from that interaction. Now, can you digitize that? I think is something that maybe Ryan Cohen and RC Ventures is maybe thinking about um, with their vision that we still haven't seen publish, uh, published, but I think that's a separate conversation. But I think I think the point is there needs to be something to that experience um, if it's not just me getting at the lowest possible cost what it is that I need from this retailer. Mm. So Rod, the, the situation at the moment with GameStop I think Damon, I can speak on both of our behalfs, first came to our attention when the hype around the possibility of the short squeeze started popping mm. up on Reddit. Um, but do you want to talk about what was the catalyst for you to, to re-enter with GameStop? Did you say in 2017 and, and yeah. fill in the space between then and the action that we're seeing now? Yeah, so it was, a, I think I said it was 100 shares in 2017. Mm -hmm. And um, I continued to add, I've continued to add really uh through through as it kept falling and you know i could talk about the gamestop story itself in a little more detail i've you know read all of the quarterly filings the 8ks all the sec filings really from then through now um th there's a lot to the story though that we need to unpack and i could unpack some of it yeah because there's more to it than uh, i think that there's some people that look and say oh you know it's more than 100 percent short interest therefore there must be a trigger that will cause this short squeeze which is not necessarily the case, although it could happen. Um, I think it's important to understand where the company came from. So you know, I mentioned they had bought Electronics Boutique, right? So so it was initially a US, a more US-based company. It was GameStop. Um, let's go back even before then, you know, Babbage's and, and the spinoff uh, that occurred there. Funko Land, I think, is a US mark that, that they also took. But maybe to bring it up to like 20, let's bring it up to the most recent cycle. Um, 2013, right? So we had the new PS4, the new Xbox come out, and GameStop's CEO at the time, Paul Rains, rest in peace, uh, he uh, had kind of taken the company in the direction of, we have this core competency that is the buy-sell trade model. And they said, let's broaden that from just used video games to include things like used consumer electronics, cell phones. They broadened out to become a cricket wireless retailer at one point. Then they expanded and, and issued a bond um, to take out debt to buy and become an AT&T reseller. So it, it was a, the thinking was, mm. well, we're really good with our ex expertise and experience um, at taking these electronics and trade, refurbishing them, reselling them, and we could take that into the cellular space and we could make some good margins there the contract ended up not moving in their direction they definitely took some haircuts they eventually sold that technology brands business it, after they went and in 2018 they undertook a strategic review so 
I'm a little all over the place, but from 13, 14 with the launch, they went and did this, you know, expansion into cellular retail, uh, which was unsuccessful. Mr. Raines got sick, had, I think it was brain cancer. He, he eventually passed oh, after he left the company. Um, but there was then this just carousel revolving door at the leadership level, and it was really a rudderless company for some time. So you had the founder, Dan Matteo, who is now no longer with the company or board at all, but he was on the board still. Um, so you had this kind of legacy board thinking that was kind of stuck in, in what had worked for them in the past. You had then the CEO who got sick and left. You had an interim CEO come in, Mike Mahler, who was head of their international business for like three months. And then he just quit. And it was like, what the fuck? There was no real logic. It was like for personal reasons, you know, in, in the formal um, SEC filing. But it was like, what is going on? Then you had Shane Kim, who was a former head of Xbox, who came in um, and basically was an interim CEO in 2018, early 18. Then you had a hedge fund. Tiger uh, Management, I think it was, Julian Robertson. I think he's a pretty famous hedge fund manager. It wasn't a huge shareholder, but he wrote a letter in, I think it was like May of 18, that basically said, you all need to undertake a strategic review because what the fuck is going on? My words, not his. And they did undertake a strategic review. So, and I think it, it makes sense to think about that because what we were talking about with COVID, because they did undertake a strategic review somewhat recently from 2018, it concluded in early 2019. And let's let's walk through that because I think that's important to understand. Um, so they had the interim CEO. They had um, at the time I, at the time they had all of these old board members, of whom there were only two of the ten that were part of the company's board of directors. And and you know just maybe for folks who aren't as interested and knowledgeable in corporate governance, um, you've got your management team. You know your your chief executive officer, right? Your your chief financial officer. And your other C-suite officers who report to him, but but above the the CEO, right, is the board of directors who actually govern and oversee the company and you know, help set the strategic direction of the company, and are going to take you know major decisions on things like M and A and and uh, on what it is that we're trying to do and, and how we're going to get there. I mean, management's the ones blocking and tackling, presumably, and they are involved in the strategy setting, but the board is at a higher, even higher level, macro level than that. So they did the strategic review in 2018. And it it dragged on through 2018. And basically what they concluded was we fucked up. It was stupid of us to try and get away from our core competency of video game expertise. We will sell this technology brands business that we had bought with this debt. So they found a buyer for 700 odd million dollars. And the strategic review concluded in January uh, of 2019 with them saying, we're gonna double down on video gaming. Um, We then hear Sherman is hired in March of 2019. uh, And then they roll out their GameStop reboot strategy, which really is in line with what work was done in that strategic review, which was let's double down on our core competency. Let's make things right. You know, I mentioned, I think that they bought Electronics Boutique, of course. So they had bought, I can share this as a personal anecdote growing up in Long Island, New York. Um, The mall that I went to as a kid there were two, there was a GameStop in the mall, there was an electronics boutique in the mall, and then in a strip mall adjacent to that mall, there was another GameStop. So there were three video game brick and mortar stores. Now, granted, this is like you know, 10 plus years ago, but there were three stores all within walking distance of mm-hmm. one another. And that is a legacy issue that they've been grappling with through their de-densification strategy for the last you know, two years now of, well, you see the headlines, oh, GameStop closed you know, 200 stores, whatever it might be. 
but it's a it's a function of all the mergers and acquisitions that they undertook over the many years that they bought all these stores and the stores themselves weren't unprofitable um but when they've looked at it now from the lens of well if we have a store right next to it if we close it we can transfer those sales right to that other store or now to their online channel so that's the stuff that they've been improving on but i hope that gives it some additional kind of understanding and context yeah, that's really interesting because I remember growing up and seeing EB Games all over the show and in like a similar vein to what you're describing where you'd go into the start of the mall and see it and then you'd go to the end of the mall and you'd see one and you'd think, you know, it's just like a direct competition. I wasn't sure if they're franchises or if the fact that they're all owned by one company, that's ridiculous. So yeah, I uh, saw that they were closing a thousand stores and I thought um, that's got to be a good thing if they're that, you know, spread mm. out. It's just just insane so that brings us all up to basically now right so they've had the strategic review sherman was mm-hmm. appointed ceo um and the strategic review when you say the core competency is that the buy sell trade uh games model that they have and, and for anyone not familiar it's essentially you go into gamestop or eb games or whatever whatever they're called wherever you are um and you offer them a game that you bought for 30 bucks and they'll give you five bucks and then sell it for 10. yes so that that is it it's it's both physical software it's also hardware and i remember there was a great bloomberg article as a matter of fact talking about that they gamestop had under had discovered uh, if you remember the xbox had this red ring of death right and the xboxes would fail uh, very quickly and overheat and, and go to shit. But they had uncovered that it was a really simple like solder uh, that type thing that they mm. built a, a machine process that, well, we'll take your red ring of death, you know, hardware, we'll send it to our general, you know, our centralized refurbishment center, get it ready to go. We're going to take it in like you've alluded to for, you know, pennies on the dollar. And then we're going to go and resell it. And historically pre-owned has been a very high gross margin, you know, gross margin being if it cost me, you know, 50 cents to buy this thing and I sold it for a dollar. Well, that's a you know 100% gross margin. It's not quite that high, but um, it would be a much better profit margin on pre-owned than on them selling a brand new Xbox or a brand new video game even, or, or even any other collectible items. Yeah. So, so the, the, the issue has been or the risk has been as there are fewer physical games sold, how much and how quickly does their core pre-owned business decline? And and they need to obviously replace those profits somehow. That's really interesting to hear that about the um, the old Xbox Red Ring of Death because that that's something that um, I think has been seared into the back of my mind through past <laughs> traumas that I'd managed to forget about. Fifteen. I'm sorry years to or bring so that later. up. And and oh, <laughs> I I can even remember just being in the living room or the bedrooms of my friends, like facing the ring for the first time, and. When the doom that sweeps over the the small group of teenage boys <laughs> as they all suddenly realize that oh my gosh, dude, it's happened. Your <laughs> Xbox is fucking dead, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so I mean, at least GameStop were able to um, capitalize on that. I hope I'm glad somebody was winning. Um, so, like Damon said, that really um, impressive and and thorough little backstory brings us up closer to to present time mm-hmm. um, and thanks so much for giving us the deep dive um, because I think the, the 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 detail really brings to life what's happening now um, so w- we'll let you do it because uh, you're far more um, around this than we are so how second you, job the sort of yeah well, there you go uh-huh. 
Yeah. GameStop <laughs> analyst. Yes, I saw the uh, the new title. I changed that. I, I I don't want people to think I'm not actually formally providing that sort of work. It's it's completely informational. Um, it's not a recommendation to buy, sell any security. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, whatever disclaimer no. you yeah. want to hear. Oh, good. It's pro bono. Um, yeah, you're doing God's work. Um, <laughs> but but I guess the point is that it's not just you know the point is that it, it still has a business model that can make sense. And while there are mm-hmm. clearly secular headwinds you know getting the cost structure right means that you can have a profitable business for a long time it isn't just the short squeeze play all right so speaking of the short squeeze play um how did how when did you first hear about this short squeeze and um what are the what are the factors at play here um if you want to outline that for for the audience oh man when i don't i couldn't tell you the first time i heard the term thrown out toward gamestop you know what's really interesting um and I've shared some of these charts on my Twitter. I'm sure you guys have seen it, Hayden and Damon. The, just yeah. looking at, back over the history of the company, you know, going back decades, and you can see that it's always been a pretty heavily shorted stock. And we need to probably talk about what does that even mean? So you, you typically talk about investing in stocks as a, I would buy the stock or, or buy the equity, and I would have an ownership stake. You know, Assume that the company had 100 shares, right? And you bought five shares, you you are entitled to 5% of that company's profits in perpetuity, um, you know, until it goes bankrupt or until you sell um, or management fucks you over and dilutes you, which we can talk about that too. <laughs> um, yeah. But but the That's other nice. way to play it would be short selling. And, and that would be you borrowed shares, you located shares that someone had and they were willing to lend. And you, the short seller, have now sold short. So you've sold your shares to Damon. I may own them. I lent them out. Hayden's the short seller. He sold shares to Damon. So Hayden has a negative five shares. Damon has bought five shares. And I still own five shares, which can make the math really wonky. But um, the play there is that Hayden was hoping the stock price would decline and he could in the future buy the shares back at a lower price and profit off of the decline in the price. So he lent, you know, lent them out and then he bought them back at a lower rate. Whereas, of course, Damon, having bought them long, was hoping for the opposite to happen. Now, what happens and has happened with GameStop is this blockbuster story that you know, physical gaming is dying has, has really come in and out of um you know, the headlines really for, for more than a decade. So if you look at any of those charts, you can see that the historical short interest has always been relatively high. Now, typically a stock is only going to be you know, a handful percent of the stock is short. So if it has a hundred shares, maybe it's, you know, three to 5%, maybe less is actually shorted. But in GameStop's case, it is more than 100%. It has gotten to be within the last year, more than 100%. And even in the prior cycles, it was in the you know 20s, 30s, 40s at times, and it got really high. And, and basically the way that it would work, if you look at the graphic on the kind of cycle is, you come into the video game cycle and the short interest was high. And then once the cycle gets here, the short interest drops because the short sellers decide to cover, they decide to buy back the shares and in essence, it adds some additional buying pressure, which pushes the price up. So that happened in 06 and in 13. Um, and this time around, it started to happen if you look later in the summer. But I think what happened that fucked the short sellers plans up was that this guy called Brian Cohen came into the picture and announced, and by the way, I've bought nine plus percent of the company. And then you had some quick news after that about disagreement with Microsoft. So and now we're facing this weird situation where 
there's formal short selling data that's captured by one of the financial industry regulators, FINRA. So they do this twice a month where FINRA's getting all the data from all the brokers. And it, it would be, you know, as of this date, so there would be a trade date and there's a settlement date when you trade a security. So the trade date plus two for the settlement date. And as of that settlement date, how many shares were um, short? So so most recently, the most recent update, I believe it was over um, 68 or 69 million. So there's other live market data providers who you know dig through breadcrumbs of trade data who will give you like a daily running estimation. But FINRA's is, is a slightly delayed, but kind of considered the, you know, the most accurate data. And yeah, we're at the situation where short sellers are so confident in the company's failure that uh, they've, they've basically maintained a close to 100%, you know, it's been 80 to 100% short interest in the shares outstanding for, for all of 2020, effectively. Even when the price got to be you know 257 at the low in uh, March and April, they never covered because I think it's safe to infer that their belief was and still is that the company is worth or will be worth and so at some point zero. And therefore, you know, in that example where Hayden lent you the shares, well, Hayden never has to actually buy them back. I mean, I guess technically for maybe a penny he would to cover and close out the trade. But the hope would be, you know, the short seller lends the shares at, say, they closed at 12.72. So if somebody wanted to come in and sell, they'd sell 100 shares for 12.72 and hope to in the future buy them back for less than 12.72 and, and maybe never buy them back because maybe it gets to zero. And that's kind of the way that it, it had been hoped to play. Mm. Um, so no one knows what's going to happen, of course. But as of this moment in time, we know that basically for every share that's in existence, there's at least one point something shares that are lent out short. And there's some really crazy nuance that I've learned way too much about lately, uh, about how that actually works. But yeah, it's pretty freaking crazy. Yeah. So they must, that suggests that they must be using like considerable leverage then to be betting against GameStop, right? That has gone beyond the actual market cap. Well, it's possible they're using leverage. Uh, they, you know, we say they, there's not one short seller. There's, there's a market of short sellers, just like there's yeah. a market of long buyers. And we know through financial reporting. So it's interesting, you know, maybe to go to the whole, you know, um, I know you guys have kind of a, the morbid take on capitalism in the United States, the disclosure laws are different than in other countries. So for example, in, in the European union, in Japan, uh, there's different degrees of disclosure required for short selling than there are in the U S. So in the U S if you're a long buyer and you've bought more than 5% of the company's stock, you would have to file, um, a 13 D if you're an activist or a G if you're a passive investor. Now, if you're a short seller and you short more than 5% of the company's stock, there's no commensurate disclosure requirement. So there's this weird information asymmetry where we know who owns the stock. We don't really know for a fact who, sh who is shorting the stock. We know who has um, derivative contracts in the form of stock options uh, a put option, meaning the right to sell shares at a certain price. And we know that Melvin Capital is a very large hedge fund that has or, or had as of their last reporting disclosure on those options over 5.4 million shares equivalent um, of contracts that they owned. So just looking at what that particular short seller does, typically you can see like when they normally short a company, say like Nintendo, it's a Japanese company. So the reporting requires for the Japanese markets that they disclose that they're short. And when they shorted CD Projekt Red in you know, a Poland-based company out of the EU, 
it required that they disclose that they were short. We don't know for a fact that they are a short seller on GameStop, but I can tell you they are a short seller on GameStop in addition to those contracts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So um, do you think that contributes at all to like some of the FUD that we're seeing around? Uh, because I've, I've often wondered this if... Like, and, and obviously they can't manipulate the price they can? or whatever, but there's like a, well, I, like overtly, I'd imagine, like, I, I mean, it must get a little murky because I remember Shkreli, uh openly calling out biotech companies on Twitter back in the day when he wasn't in jail <laughs> and like totally fudding the absolute shit out of some of those biotechs, like into the ground and shorting them all. Um, but I was wondering that feels like that's kind of happening at the same time now where it's just you know i see a lot of bear articles all over the show um in relation to yeah fud fear uncertainty doubt right that's the acronym so yeah i know that there there were was one really good article i saw recently talking about this kind of murky semi-legal industry of paid writers and researchers who would be paid or or basically supported by maybe there's someone who has a balance sheet you know they have a lot of capital that they're willing to throw to short an entity um, but they let an, a front-facing researcher be the one who presents the argument for why that um, company maybe is worth less than the market price at present uh, represents. So I don't want to get into too many conspiracy theories. I don't know for a fact that there are writers out there doing this for GameStop, but you're right. It does seem like whether it's innocent, just lack of knowledge. I do see a lot of headlines where it's like GameStop's going out of business because they're selling consoles with no discs. And this was actually part of the reason why I invested a lot more in 2018 and 19 was when it became clear that the next gen consoles were going to have discs. That to me was a sign as a GameStop investor that well, clearly this cycle isn't going to be it. If they're going to make the next-gen consoles, which then came to be you know, the PS5 and the Series X with discs, and we've seen a lot of the early preliminary data showing that the demand, or at least the production, is closer to physical. I want to have the option, at least. You know, The, the PS5 is the cleanest example because it's literally hmm. either it has an optical driver or it doesn't for $100. And there's a lot of economic reasons why Sony might actually prefer you to buy the digital one, why they're they're actually basically taking a loss on it up front because of the long, you know, the cash flows that they'll generate over the life of the sale of that console are, are greater potentially for them with it being digital because they don't have to give a retailer a cut of the profit margin. Um, but but the PS5, let me not go all over the place. The PS5, it has been roughly a yeah. 75 25-ish, maybe 80-20, depending on which market from all the data I've seen, of PlayStation 5 disc to digital. Now, just because you buy a disc doesn't mean you're going to buy 100% physical games, but of course it does help a lot too that these generations are, unlike the prior generation, backwards compatible. So if I buy, buy my PS5 disc, I can buy um, PS4 games and play those on my PS5 into the next you know, five to 10 years, however many years I have the console. So, so there's a value there with the backwards compatibility. I think that's going to drive incrementally some more demand for physical. And yes, there's a consumer segment that is fine with pure digital, um, but you, that's contingent on you know, steady, reliable, high-speed internet access. And uh, digital games, to be honest, if they're the same price as physical, it's hard for me to justify. I mean, I can understand convenience if you view digital as more convenient, but like you were saying, Damon, I mean, it, you could at least get something back for the physical disc that you bought, even if, whether you sell it on an eBay, uh, mm. whatever platform du jour outside of a GameStop trade-in. 
Um, at least it's worth something. And I know that there's also been examples of games where the digital version became unsupported at some point. Now, if you bought the physical disc, granted, if it's like a pure internet only game, maybe they're not supporting the servers at some stage, but um, there are still perks and plus the collectability, right? I mean, I know a lot of gamers do like to show off their collections and, you know, having that, that case, like I have gotten a lot of switch games this year and it's kind of cool to have all of those switch cases. And you can see like, I've built this collection. And I think that there is a piece of it there within the gaming culture that people do like to show off their collection. There's a, there is that piece, even if you're not just doing it from a pure economics of, Oh, I can go sell this for 20 bucks eventually when I'm done with it. Um, so there, there's a few reasons I think why physicals is, is enduring and should endure um, for at least the next five to 10 years, if not longer, to be quite honest. Maybe it's not going to be the majority, but it's going to exist. Mm. Yeah, I found my old Game Boy the other day and threw in some games and I was pretty stoked. <laughs> like, <laughs> just seeing it and being able to uh, to play it and, mm. you know, give it to my niece was pretty rad. But um, yeah, right. So just, just to recap then, we've got this... Um... This company, GameStop, which is in some ways a, a bit of a falling giant, it's it's experienced this fall from grace. Um, and then on on one end, we've got um, largely hedge funds and institutional investors who are betting on the drastic collapse of this company in order to mm -hmm. profit on it. And then on the other side, we've got um, what I assume would be mostly retail investors and actually, well, some um, speculative business people like Ryan Cohen, who um, are betting the opposite and are buying up GameStop shares um, in the hopes of holding these um, in the long term to see the company turn around and once again become profitable for the reason that Rod's described here. So we're, we're seeing this, this tug of war, um, which some people are speculating might resu result in this um, short squeeze, which will see the the stock price um climb um sort of cancelling out these these short sellers in a sense so one of the interesting characters in this whole thing is ryan cohen so he's somewhat of an x factor so should we maybe talk a little bit about ryan cohen's background and why he has the the potential to greatly influence the outcome of of this situation yeah I think that's a good idea. I think it's worth adding. It's not just retail that's been accumulating the the shares of the company as well. That there were a few okay. 13D um, filers earlier this year. I think it was in February, March. So there was Donald Foss, who is a billionaire, um, and then there was Must Asset Management, both of which accumulated about five percent of the company. More mm -hmm. recently, even since Ryan uh, took his shares through RC Ventures, is uh, Senvest Capital Management, who is another hedge fund who likes um you know unloved misunderstood i think is kind of the language they use in their in their web page mm -hmm. but basically the same line of thinking you know that this stock is hated misunderstood but we see a you know future two plus years out for mm -hmm. it to revalue so it's not just ryan obviously yeah. there's Thanks other players <laughs> but but to your point ryan is and has become the largest shareholder you know through his llc rc ventures so so let me give a little bit of the story and my take on it. Um, Ryan Cohen was a co-founder of Chewy.com, which at least um, domestically has become the largest e-commerce player for, for the pet supply and pet food and pet you know everything channel. And I think it's about a hundred-ish billion dollar market. So it's a pretty darn big market. 
and he founded this business. And I think the feedback he heard from all the reading I've done is, well, why the hell are you doing this? Amazon is just going to crush you. And I know that what I've understood his takeaway was, well, they have some blind spots. They can't deliver truly experiential, um, really customized, know your customer type experiences with how big they've become and how kind of cumbersome they can be. So, you know, he went and went to like a hundred odd different venture capital companies to try and get raised capital for his idea. And he got told no by all of them until he finally found someone who said yes. But he, uh, from everything I've heard from people who have spoken with him or know him is very, you know, confident in his own abilities and is very tenacious. And he went through it all and they eventually were bought out by um, PetSmart for three point something billion dollars. So he certainly did well for himself walking away from that. I know that uh, his father had passed away, uh, I think it was late last year. And I know he kind of took some time away from the whole investment world. And he's a little different in that he's very concentrated in, if I have conviction in something, I'm going all in, so to speak. Like he only invested in Apple and Wells Fargo uh, and now GameStop, seemingly, if we re, you know trust what he said in these interviews that have been put out through a variety of different publications. So he's now the largest shareholder in GameStop. He owns 9.98, uh, sorry, 6.5 million shares, um, depending on you know, what your denominator is for shares outstanding. He owns 6.5 million, um, purposefully less than 10% because the, the reporting and disclosure rules and, and the action requirements become even more um, challenging when you go over 10. But you know, he he went and clearly had some conversations with management uh, over the summer that he wasn't wholly satisfied with. So he put forth this letter, I think it was November 16th, that he publicized through the Wall Street Journal. So even before that letter, he or someone presumably in his camp had leaked, you know, this vision of a GameStop being like the Amazon of gaming, similar to Chewy being the Amazon of pet supplies. Uh, and game gaming is a twice as large. It's a huge market globally. It's going to grow to be over two hundred billion dollars. Uh, you know, granted, there's a lot of sub segments: console gaming, PC gaming, mobile gaming that GameStop doesn't necessarily play in right now. But it's a huge market. So clearly, he sees there's value in what this brand represents. From a, yeah, I, I had a, there was one person who had said like I hadn't bought a video game in years. My kid needed something for their Wii, and the first thing that came to mind was GameStop. And it's there's there's the brand cachet that exists. So I think he sees it as can we shift into this 21st century consumption method of being more you know e-commerce oriented, digital first. And obviously management took a lot of those words and used them in the most recent quarterly call, saying omni-channel a lot, digital first a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know clearly he wasn't satisfied with the loan board seat is what he said in this letter that that he was offered. So it, it begs the question of what's next to come. Um, we can look to the past to help us understand what might be next to come. In this spring, there was another longstanding GameStop shareholder who owned for longer than me um, Hestia uh, and and Permit Capital, two hedge funds. Hestia I think has owned since 2011 or 12. But basically, they had been dissatisfied in uh, 2019, early 2019. They had communicated with the board. They'd, effect, they'd ended up recommending a couple of board members um, to, to the board. I think it was Fernandez and Dunn. And, and that goes back to what I was saying is the new board is very different than the old board. But 
there was that strategic review I talked about that got completed. Now Ryan's calling for another strategic review. And if you think about it, with all that's changed in the world since it concluded in early 2019 from the last strategic review with COVID and with us now knowing what the next-gen consoles are like and what consumer demand is appearing to be for how they want service delivery to them, um, it makes sense that he's calling for another strategic review or, or at minimum he wants management to lay out a clear plan on the path they see going forward because management's, to management's credit, they've done a good job of cutting costs, lowering the selling general and admin, the SG&A line on, on the income statement, you know, largely through, through what you said, Damon, you know, the thousand odd stores that will be closed to, to transfer, you know, the number they've thrown out was 40% plus of the sales get transferred to either e-commerce or to the, other you know, adjacent nearby stores. So, so I think it's going to be very interesting in the next couple of months because you've got, all right, earnings is done. So what's next? January, the, the management team has told us that they're going to tell us more about their strategy into the future at this ICR conference on January 13th. They will report holiday sales results just before then. So we'll have some more fireworks, I think, in early January, and then it will probably put the ball back in RC Ventures Court. Um, you know, I jumped around a little bit, but that other shareholder group in early 2020 ran what's called a proxy uh, contest against the um, board slate. So the board members are up for a vote every year, the 10 member board, and the 10 people who get the most votes are the board members. Typically, it's a non-event. It's, you know, no, no one really worries about it because it's just kind of a a step in the process. But in this spring, Pestia Permit put forth two board members, um, Paul Evans and Kurt Wolf, who they ran this proxy contest. Uh, if you look at the stock chart and the borrow fees, which are kind of, we talked about short interest, there's also the borrow function of, of share lending. So you know, it's not a free lunch if Hayden lends you, you know, those shares. Um, uh, the person who is borrowing these these shares to lend them out is going to pay whoever they borrowed them from. Now that fee it's 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 a it's a market. So whatever supply and demand are, if there is not much supply of shares to be lent and there's a lot of demand, it's going to force the borrow rate up. And that's what happened this spring. There was this really weird phenomenon where there there was a short squeeze in effect. The price went from 257 in the early part of April to close to six in a matter of two weeks. And the borrow rate was an annualized like 200%. Talking loan shark type borrow rates. I mean, you, mm, just to borrow the stock sick. for a week, yeah. right? 52 weeks, you're talking about 4% just to borrow the stock. So some shareholders like myself, you know, there's all this nuance because a lot of times the small guy is fucked in this case because we aren't going to get, the retail person isn't going to get that borrow rate. That You know, if, if, if my broker is lending my shares out, there are programs, um, through certain brokers all throughout the world where they'll split the borrow fee with you, but they're not going to give you the juiciest fee and, you know, okay, yeah, I'm splitting it. Great. Um, in option markets, the borrow fee gets embedded in the price of derivative contracts. So not to go too wonky, but you basically, if you were a shareholder of the stock who wasn't able to take advantage of that fact that your shares there was massive demand for your shares to be lent out. You could enter like a futures position where basically you sold your shares and entered into like a futures contract to get free alpha. For me, I did that. And it was like a free 20% return to take that position for January 21. I know other people who did that. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts going on in the borrow markets. 
So to get back to this whole idea of, you know, will there be a short squeeze later this year? You got to understand, too, there's a variety of different owners. There are owners who are passive. They may own it just because GameStop is a small cap component of this index. So they have to own X percent of GameStop because they're trying to replicate this index. And in the spring, there was a good Wall Street Journal article from, I think it was June, if you were to type like Wall Street Journal, GameStop, share recall, it should be the first result. And it basically talked about how when the vote took place this spring for this proxy, for the fight, for these two board seats, only two thirds of the shares outstanding were actually eligible to vote because the other one third, which were mostly the passive ETFs, kept the shares out on loan because they determined it was in their best interest. It was their fiduciary you know, interest to generate lending income as opposed to actually voting on what happens to the company. And it'll be really interesting this spring if, if RC Ventures decides to go the proxy slate, which I have no idea what they're going to do. But just thinking about what happened in the past as a potential guide to what will happen in the future, you know, if, if RC Ventures says, yeah, I want to you know, pr- propose my own board members and they do that, and, and maybe it's a majority of the board this time. It's kind of this really weird quandary where you've got these shareholders who own, maybe the, the passive zone about a third of the company who it's like you own the company, but you have no dog in the fight, no pun intended, to actually make a, a, an effect on who is voted for if you just keep your shares lent out. Mm. So it's a lot of really competing priorities in the whole thing. I hope, it, hope that made some sense. I know it was all over the place. No, absolutely. It loves the detail. It's really good. Um, so it <laughs> it sounds like it's either going to uh, swing way up or way down then come come spring, depending on what sort of happens. I mean, no one knows what's going to happen, but, but here's what I would say. Um, personally, I'm not invested. I've been invested, obviously, before Ryan Cohen ever became involved. And, and I had a belief, and I think I still do believe the management team is executing on, on parts of, of their strategy that they articulated, especially with optimization. Uh, the de-densification, the stabilization. So so they've done some good things. And I think even if you take him out of the picture altogether, the price should be higher just from a valuation standpoint, in my opinion, from what I've done um, in terms of researching it and valuing. And obviously, short sellers you know, disagree and think it should be worth less. But, but to the point I think you're driving at is there's absolutely going to be some fireworks if in the spring RC Ventures decides they want to go this route. And now we're going to have people recalling their shares. And is there going to be a shortage of shares for these short sellers? Do they have to cover? Um, no one knows for sure what's going to happen. So I think we can all agree it's going to just be more ridiculousness when it comes to GameStop. Yeah, grab the popcorn. Do you, so one of the things, one of the big critiques that I've seen is people are hating on George Sherman pretty hard. Um, the conference call, and you know, if you're if you're listening to this and you want to be in pain, you should check <laughs> it out. Um, the like repeated omni-channel, which I googled because I wasn't <laughs> entirely sure. Like I sort of just sounded kind of like nonsense buzzwords that I have heard in the past from various places that I've worked, um, but. As I understand it, that's sort of like a one-stop marketing thing, and they'll push out their own marketing campaign to everything, which I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really even know what that means, if anything at all, um, in terms of actual credible action towards making the company better. But do you see this as sort of like a, a – this is me injecting my own opinion a little bit, but – 
it feels like there's kind of like a real tired old school approach here that's not acknowledging some of these new strats, these new strategies in place that people would have seen with the likes of Chewy, like a hyper-personalized experience and taking more punts on digital. I'm kind of surprised that I haven't seen any like even mention of a Steam-like product coming out, like some sort of, you know, digital delivery service. Um, even they've had plenty of time to see Steam sort of, you know, gaining traction and as well as like the PS store and other stores and whatnot. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at, there's, it's hard to imagine George Sherman sitting down and playing COD. Um, do you think that it's maybe like there's, they're too sort of old and crusty and haven't got a grip on the way the world's changing? So I think you did hit on an area that's worth exploring a little bit is, is gaming is social. And, you know, when you're playing COD, you're not just playing campaign mode by yourself. Typically, you're going to be playing with people online in a in a PvP type scenario. Whether I mean, I can think back to my undergrad playing Halo. I don't even know which Halo it was at the time, but that's what we did when we should have otherwise been studying for exams is playing Halo with people all over the world. So, so for, you know, Xbox and PlayStation, they've built these really powerful social ecosystems. Um, Amazon obviously bought Twitch and Twitch has become a really powerful social ecosystem. There's of course, YouTube too, that people you know, record and live stream gaming, all that on. But you know, GameStop did own Congregate, which was, I think, a social type platform, maybe similar to that direction that they eventually sold off. So, you know, hindsight is always 2020. It's like in hindsight, should they have bought Twitch and invested the money there and built this really robust social platform that they could monetize through you know, sponsorships, advertising, whatever? Yes, of course. But we're here, we're now. And your question is, you know, do does the current management team have the right set of skills? I think it's fair to ask that because at its core, the management team is a very competent retail oriented, brick and mortar oriented squad. And that's not to knock them. That's to say that they are good at what they've done and been doing, you know, optimizing the core, getting inventory levels down, improving inventory turns, you know, trying to improve gross margin, bringing in, you know, some expanded product categories, which they've done great work. They've added, you know, PC accessories and components. They've started to add like arcade gaming. Like if you want to buy a pinball machine type thing for your home, which is pretty freaking cool. I mean, I haven't bought one yet, but they now have those, you know, $455, $50 on the site. So, so they're doing more to make it not just like console gaming, like the legacy model and hopefully broaden the categories. You know, they've definitely made it so that the website is a very wide skew assortment and they've limited the skew assortment in store. I, I don't know what EB Games looks like, you know, on your side of the, of the world, but I can think of, you know, a few years back, the stores are very cluttered, shit all over the place, just completely random stuff. <laughs> and they've they've yeah. gone through what they call you know a store reset that they're not complete with yet. And I've posted you know some pictures on my stock tweets and Twitter, and you know I'm always doing this crap. But the stores are a lot cleaner looking. It's nicer aesthetic. It's a better experience if you want to walk around and peruse. And maybe they don't have to have every single game that was ever made in the store itself because they have a knowledgeable employee who can talk about it with you and say, you know what, because you like this genre. And well, let's leverage also the fact that we have a you know 60 odd million power up rewards uh, loyalty program where we know that you know Rod really likes MMORPGs and therefore there's this new MMO coming out so we can custom you know advertise it to Rod through his digital interface on GameStop.com. Um, they they are making strides in that direction and I think the question becomes can this team get there quickly enough or is a disruptor who's you know, core competency was building a very personalized 
business like Chewy, uh, is somebody like that more better suited to getting them where they need to go? I mean, they rolled out a new app, a new website, they're doing the right things, but you know, they, you look at the who is on the board and you still don't see like real robust e in management. You still don't see like really robust e-commerce native type players on and around them. And I think that's what they need probably to get some more credibility in that space. But yeah, yeah. Um, it's insane to me to look at companies like DoorDash and Airbnb and just see these outsized tech multiples. And then, you know, part of me, you know, obviously this is probably going to age poorly when I sort of jump back and, and you know, there's some sort of horrendous bubble and it pops and everything. But it, it's hard to sort of see um, some of these tech companies. EV companies. Like let's, let's talk bursting. about EV companies. Oh. You know, the valuation, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this back just bonanza that's going on. You know, look, I own a Chevy Volt. Um, I think that's the Holden is what it was down down by you guys, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. I bought it new mm. in 2014, and I, so I've I've owned an EV, you know, plug-in hybrid EV, whatever you want to call it, for for a long time. The market is not going to be 100% EV anytime soon. It's it may never be 100% EV, but for certain markets that have a lot of regulation around reducing internal combustion engine activity, um, specifically the United States just given the geographical footprint of the country is not going to be 100% EV ever. Um, you have a lot of infrastructure constraints, but when you look at these valuations, like you were getting at Damon, it's like, you have to assume that the market becomes, you know, 100% or close to it EV very quickly. And that each of these companies takes massive share and the legacy OEMs don't do shit. I will tell you for a fact, General Motors has spent Volkswagen, especially Volkswagen has spent more money than pretty much everybody combined. I mean, these companies are not doing nothing and sitting on their laurels and the valuations that are getting ascribed to these new, you know, shiny objects, um, it, it will fail at some point. No one can call when the bubble will end. And this isn't to knock on EVs. I own one. I love them. They are great. It's a better experience as a consumer if it fits into your driving patterns and your lifestyle. Uh, but that said, it does not mm. and will not for everyone. And it is still a cost premium while I'm the first to say it, price parity and cost parity. And, and it's also misunderstood, right? Like there's upfront cost parity, which is one thing. There's also total cost of ownership. My day job industry is is in commercial transportation. So total cost of ownership is what we care about. You know, if you're trying to make your fleet the best it can possibly be, you're going to want the lowest total cost. And yeah, you may pay a little bit more upfront, but if your maintenance, your fuel, et cetera, is lower, your operating expense, you'll, you're willing to pay the CapEx. And that's what the equation will be for fleets, both commercial vehicle and passenger car, taxis, you know, Ubers, whatever. They're not going to make the decision just because, oh, they like the shiny, you know, Tesla logo. They're going to make the decision because it makes financial sense. And that day will get here, but it's not here yet. And it's not going to be for every scenario. Yeah, I remember this is why part of the whole GameStop story is so interesting to me because I remember looking at Tesla last year and just thinking like, oh man, this is before it's 15x <laughs> and thinking that it was overvalued and being like, well, you know, they're making losses and like Elon's totally banking off these green energy rebate. Uh, what are they? The, the green credits that he was getting and that was essentially mm -hmm. bumping up like their ability to actually turn a profit. Um, but fuck shorting that company. Holy crap. You know, yep. and, <laughs> and I can't help but sort of wonder, you know, how you can have one company making 4 billion a year in sales, like more GameStop, you know, that's has this 
more right okay my my date is up um it normally is <laughs> but like you know but you're right just, they're, they're, they're doing five uh, plus billion have in sales some... they're valued yeah. at less than a billion and then these companies are doing hardly anything in sales and they're valued at 100 plus billion and i think that you know not not to say that they're completely crazy for bidding airbnb and, and doordash up to that point clearly there's there's obviously a lot uh, i have i have an mba and, and in school you know you, you learn how to do the valuation exercises and, and you're looking mm-hmm. out over long periods of time most of the company's value comes in the terminal value because you assume that the company will grow and eventually it will reach a steady state so when you're doing a valuation on somebody like doordash you may assume 10, 15 years of very high, you know, above market rate growth. And then you assume that eventually it reaches a steady state where it's grown and now it is growing in line with the market. You have to use different discount rate, you know, to, to come up with all the what the cash flows are worth. Because in theory, these companies are worth, you know, the discounted value of, of their free cash flows in theory. Um, but then you look at these, you know, valuations of how are you possibly saying that this company will will generate enough free cash flow to be worth what you're bidding it up for? And that's where you get into these bubble scenarios where it's like, to your point, you may want to short it, but you don't know how crazy it's going to go. It's, it's, it's like maybe Bitcoin in 2017, where it just went completely bonkers and you could have lost your shirt if you shorted it, you know, at the wrong point in time. And then you get what's called a margin call if you aren't a, a hedge fund that has a multi-billion dollar balance sheet. And then uh, there was one company this past week that did some cancer drug, GL something or other, green something or other. Um, yeah, yeah GL. And I saw one, you know, person. Uh, yeah. you, you have the gain and loss porn on Wall Street bets who lost like a quarter million dollars. Who, who <laughs> had, um, you know, short, shorted it, you know, and not closed out and just got completely crushed. So, you know, markets right now are crazy because you have these zero interest rate policies from the central banks. So people are discounting these future cash flows at a very low rate. And it's like, well, if the discount rate is very low, then that future growth is worth more. So that's why the growth stocks have been getting bid up like crazy. Part of it. Um, so speaking of um, gain and loss porn, this is we're getting off track here, but I just wanted to give a shout out to the uh, please fly again guy who um, lost his life savings because of the um, Virgin Galactic uh, test flight mishap. Um, did you guys see that? No, I'll, no, um, no. I'll I'll check a um, link in the chat right now. Um, I'll try and find find it. I'm just um... you know that that's one crazy thing that's come about from COVID. At least you know in the U.S. Right? You have all these people who maybe they you know, if, if you work in hospitality. My my sister worked for an airline and and she was laid off and lost her job. And they work in you know hotels or restaurants, bars. All these people don't have a job to go to right now, and you're in the lockdown. And I think, like in March and April, especially, people were trying to entertain themselves. And and in the U.S., at least, you had a lot of disposable income just flowing in in the form of these um, CARES Act checks, and people were throwing them into the stock market. Some of them, and um, you had a lot of this just pure gambling. I mean, people just buying options, not understanding what an option even means, just knowing that somebody on Reddit told them that it would go up. And therefore, because, you know, Dave Portnoy said stocks go up, that therefore they'll continue to go up. (laughs) So you've had a lot of weird behaviors. I mean, I'm I'm not the norm. You know, I had opened a Roth IRA when I was like 21, which isn't a retirement account, you know, domestically. So I've been into this stuff. And obviously my story about being a teenager and buying GameStop, I've been interested in this stuff for a long, long time. And I've done it for a long time. I made some stupid mistakes. Um, thankfully, you know, I haven't made the mistake that some of these people that are posting like that they put their life savings into a weekly call option that was like 
50% out of the money, which is just like, what are you doing now? Now it may hit. There's a one in, you know, very large number chance that it hits and you make a ton of money. And some people share that, but it's feeding into a lot of really, really bad speculative behaviors and gambling like behaviors. Hmm. I'm fascinated by this entire shift to more retail investors coming in. Cause we've just had a similar thing happening in New Zealand um, where there was a Robin hood type app open here. Uh, which allowed like, a, you know, historically the brokers here have been kind of like a pain in the ass to deal with. And it's been a bit of a nightmare to try and get your money into the stock market. Um, and now we've had this flood of retail investors, which has seen some stocks that have like, I don't know, that people think are going to go up have just moomed like crazy. Like we had a, there was a, we had a referendum mm-hmm. vote on cannabis recently and there's a medical cannabis company that's run by some dude with, you know, like nondescript business <laughs> experience and air quotes. And the whole thing looked pretty shoddy. Um, that's shit. If anybody doesn't understand Kiwi speak, uh, and it just went way up like massively. And you, you saw all this like huge amount of retail activity pumping the stocks up, but of course, um, it also yeah. went way down because you know, they're not hedged. They don't sort of, you know, that's probably their life savings. You know, more of them are going to be uh, like paper handed and, and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so, so I've just dropped, dropped a link in the chat here. So um, this guy, like um, for, for the listeners, like it's probably, you're probably not going to get it. The joke's not going to translate, but um, this like, please fly again is turning into like a meme now on, um, on Wall Street bets and just <laughs> this poor fucker, man. I feel so sorry for him. Um, as someone who uh, jumped ship at exactly the right time out of uh, out of space, uh, I uh, I feel feel deeply for this person. Yeah. Um, um, I'm really curious to know. Do you think that retail investors like just the so backing up a little bit? Um, I'm curious for your thoughts on like we're seeing sort of you know kind of like weird market dynamics and this could just be like a bubble and i wouldn't be surprised if it all pops and it's kind of like just dot com 2.0 but uh also part of me wants to believe that there's this new paradigm of retail investors that have the the ability to kind of like completely fuck up some of these financial models that the hedge funds are using um or influence the options market just by uh their own sort of you know exuberance for stocks and whatever that could lead to kind of like a new market that's even more mental than than the ones before yeah you know so that's an interesting question there was some interesting research that i saw a few different times cited i mean i personally really like bloomberg i think they're a great financial uh, literature source reuters um, wall street journal you know you can't go wrong with those big three but but bloomberg was i think delving into this a lot the last few months you know how much of an impact does retail really have and they, there were a couple of interesting studies that found that uh, relative to any other you know, holder, retail um, has the largest effect. It, it was like 5x that of you know, maybe a, a, an ETF, you know, just a basic you know, uh, institutional player, just because I think the, um, you know, the money flows. So, so basically, you know, the research was saying that there was a larger effect. And then I think when you get these interesting scenarios of... <laughs> a Wall Street bets type platform, or, or even just in general, the idea of, you know, FOMO and MOMO, and you start to see it moving, and then more people pile in, and it's more capital flowing in, especially from retail. And I think the point you were kind of getting at is, you know, I'm not an expert on these whole, like, gamma squeeze, blah, 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 have, you know, options, market makers having to hedge, I'm not going to claim I know the ins and outs of that. But 
you definitely are creating a lot of um, instability, I think, in fairly pricing equities in markets because of all this capital just sloshing around and a lot of it being very transient. I mean, think about it. Like most of the time, like go back decades, you know, pre.com, people are buying a stock to make an investment for multiple years. This is not a, I'm buying the stock on Monday at 9.35 to sell it at <laughs> 9.48 on a massive spike because you know, everybody and their uncle, you know, piled in. <laughs> that is, that is a form of trading, right? Day trading. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with it per se, but there's a lot of people doing it that don't understand yep. it and are, I think, just taking on way more risk than, than they should responsibly. And it's, it's, it's frightening. It's, 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 um, a lot of people are going to yeah. lose a lot of money when it, when and if the bubbles pop. That goes for you, GameStop investor that bought at $15 and is wondering why it's whoa, $12 whoa. right Listen, now. <laughs> GameStop, to me, the fair value of GameStop is is at least twice its current price, even if you take Mr. Cohen out of the mix altogether. But because think about it, we still have this wet blanket, yeah. right, yeah. of 100 plus percent short interest. So you've still got you know 60 plus 70 odd million shares short. So I've posed the question on, on StockTwits and I ask people, what do you think the price would be if it weren't for that? And I think that on average, people expect the price to be you know, into the 30s or 40s at least. And um, it remains to be seen. You know, One of the big players, I alluded to Melvin Capital earlier, they made a big trade on Friday. They closed out their July $15 call, mm. um, put contracts and they rolled it up to January 22nd. Same strike, but a smaller amount, 38,000 contracts, 3.8 million. So maybe they're starting to prepare to cover. Maybe they're going to um, look to offload you know, their short position to retail short position. Uh, and maybe retail is going to be the one who gets screwed on a squeeze. Maybe they swing long. Um, who knows what could happen? It's a lot of speculation. But we can say the company will, let me not say will, they should be making a profit in the fourth quarter, which will be their first profit in some time. You know, Go back to 18 and, and 19, there was a lot of asset impairments. There was goodwill impairments, non-cash losses. So if you look at the income statement on face value, it's like, what the fuck? They're losing hundreds of millions of dollars. They're going bankrupt. We need to dig a little bit deeper and understand yeah. that they wrote down things like goodwill, um, which you get when you buy a company. They wrote down, you know, asset values on their books, which you know doesn't require them to use cash. So there's more to it. And some of that's intangible, exactly. right? Like some exactly. of that's more like, oh, we kind of fucked up the brand of GameStop. Um, I'm grabbing my charger, and now we're writing it off as a loss. No worries. All right, no worries. Cool. Man, how good is this? Yeah, no, it's good. Oh, cool. We're still on. Yeah, no, no. I'm I'm significantly more bullish now, which is good. I was fucking dying. <laughs> no, this um... <laughs> I was reading some fun on Wall Street bets, like, like super anxious coming into this. Like, oh, um, oh but guys, I didn't tell you I sold everything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I was so paranoid. I was thinking like, fuck, if Rod comes on and it's just like, yeah, I just bought it because I wanted to see what would happen. I'm like, uh, just gonna go fucking. Okay. Jump. I just thought, um, I just thought this could be the ultimate pump and dump play for Rod. Hey, like we'll drop the podcast. He shares it. It goes all over Wall Street bets, and then he just no, sells look, the shit and yeah. pieces look, out. Know, I, 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 I've been lucky in that I bought a lot when it was very low. Like I remember Michael Burry, um, very well known investor, right? The Big Short. And he had written a letter in August of 20. So he'd been in and out of the stock. You know, he certainly lost some money in, on, on the trade at some point in 2019, 18. But um, he had written a letter, I think it was August 16th or so. And the price had gotten down to like $3 and change. 
of 2019. And this was after they'd made it clear that the consoles are going to have disk drives. So to me, it was like, what the fuck? I mean, 65 million shares at the time times you know, $4. It was worth like 200 something million dollar market cap. And it just didn't make any sense. This is a company that generates over $5 billion in revenue. So it's trading at like it's point. It's fucking insane. Isn't yeah. It? So what I had done at that time was I bought a lot of January 2021, you know, knowing the consoles were coming in the fall, you know, winter of 2020, I bought January 21 call options, like $4 and $5 strike call options for, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 cents a piece. And I eventually acquired a lot of them. So, so yeah, I've been invested since 17, but my cost basis got down to, I'd say, weighted average below six. I've been averaging up though. I'm, I'm happy to be buying near these levels, to be quite honest. Um, I'd like to see where we settle because look, Senvest came in, hedge fund, and we know that they filed a 13G that they own more than 5% of the company. Um, we're not going to hear from them again unless they go over is the, the, G, the G has a little bit different disclosure requirement, but they could go over 10% and we won't hear about it right away because they're a passive holder. But you know, you look at their investment philosophy and you have to conclude they don't go in just to flip it for, you know, five bucks, you know, a quick flip. They're in it for years and in all likelihood, they're happy to continue accumulating in low teens. So um, I'm in it till at least in all likelihood, you know, look, things can go crazy, but I plan on being in it for years to come. I, I hope whether it's Sherman and Co or Cohen and Co, who knows, or, or some third player, um, I think it's safe to say, though, it's still undervalued is my my perception. I'm, it, it's not a pump mm. and dump. The, the squeeze is not the play. The squeeze yeah. is a is a interesting novelty byproduct to me. Mm -hmm. Well, man, um, we don't need to wrap up just yet, but I think we're we're winding down. Um, and I just want to say thanks so much for coming on because you've honestly taught you've taught me so much in seventy or eighty minutes. Um, it's just it's so so great to be able to have people on who clearly just for whatever reason, are just passionate about something and want to share it because that is some of the most, I don't know, the most valuable interactions that you can have in life, in my opinion, with other people is giving someone the opportunity to just really tell you about their shit. And it's fucking good. It gets me <laughs> pumped. I love it. it I, I find it really exciting. And obviously having a stake in this um, conversation makes it more exciting. Um, so... Is there anything else you want to you want to plug or discuss, Rod? Like anything on your mind? <laughs> well, in our country, our electoral college has has you know finally sealed the fate of um, who will be our next commander in chief. So that's interesting to note that um, mm -hmm. it's it's a done deal, uh, or at least it had been a done deal, right? But now it's actually a done deal. No, I'm I'm very interested to see what happens with U.S. you know international relations because I think they deteriorated pretty significantly. You know, our domestic relationship with our European allies. Obviously, we have a strong relationship with Australia uh, and New Zealand, and just our trading partners all over the world. I think there was a lot of you know, look. We we had a we had an administration that slapped a lot of tariffs on Canada, uh, in addition to. Mexico, who are two of our biggest trading partners. So I hope that we'll see a much less adversarial United States from a global perspective um, in the four years to come. And you know, look, I, I personally just am really hopeful that um, my my country and other countries can get COVID under control. I mean, there's a vaccine mm -hmm. that look, there's multiple vaccines. Um, I am you know young and healthy, so I'm not 
planning on being vaccinated. I don't need to be vaccinated anytime soon, but I hope that, you know, we can safely start to vaccinate the people who are more at risk and we can start to get back in 2021, maybe mid-year, but to a more normal world where we can travel again. We can go and yep. be out in public. I know it's, it's sad because in certain parts of you know Asia, I know it's pretty much life as usual, but it, it's not like that in Europe and North America right now. So... Yeah, it's a like we were saying before we started recording. It's a weird contrast because, um, and this isn't to like you know lord it over anybody listening in the states or whatever. But uh, life here is sort of normal. There's no COVID. Um, it's not even really discussed anymore. We just talk about the price of housing and and uh, yeah, that's kind of mm. it, right? So price um, of housing could be a fun conversation. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's um, a whole another. We've. We've had yeah. our spiel on that in the past, believe me. Well, you um, guys have a lot of, I think, <laughs> Chinese money and just international money that's flooded in and people bidding up the prices and locals getting out, out, priced out of the market, right? Well, um, it's very hmm. interesting that you mention uh, Chinese money um, because it's uh, quickly looking more and more like Australia is going to need a uh, benevolent friend in the United States over the next hmm. four years because we've found ourselves in the midst of what's proving to be a really nasty trade war with China at the moment mm. um, in response to Australia's attempts to challenge um, China's response to the pandemic and also um, critiquing their human rights record. Um, overnight, China just um, banned all Australian coal exports to China, which is a $15 billion uh, yearly export market. Yeah, you guys have a lot um, of miners, wow. Yeah, it's uh, and, and that's just just one item on the list. Um, I think the um, the the uh, tariffs and banned exports now are totaling nearly one hundred billion dollars. Um, so Australia has pretty fucking deep hole to start digging itself out of. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, so here's hoping that uh, that Granddad Biden comes in, pushes some stimulus through, and starts trying to patch some stuff together, and then. As you say, yeah. we start to see a return to some level of normalcy uh, by the second half of 2021. Our own stock market is pretty much tethered mm. to America's. So we're all hoping for the stimulus as well, you know, as well as like, you know, it would be a good thing for everybody to have beyond just like moving. Yeah, you know, so. I'll just add one last thought. I know we're wrapping up, yeah. but it, it it is a sad reality that while some people have I mean, I'm a white collar worker. I work from home. I was able to move and actually get into a house as opposed to the condo I'd lived in. So I have more space. It costs less. I can work from home. It saves me money. This, that, and the other. Whereas there's a lot of people. I mentioned you know, my sister lost her job at an airline. There's millions of people who are still out of work domestically at the bare minimum. And it's like you have this K-shaped recovery where you have the winners who've just gotten more and more, in many cases, upper class people or upper middle class people beneficiaries and not through their, it's not like they, they took advantage of anyone. It's just a byproduct of how things have gone. But then you have the other folks who maybe you have to go into work uh, for your job. And maybe you have a loved one at home who is health at risk and you don't want to put them at risk. So you can't, you know, continue that line of work for the near term. So there's been a lot of losers on the lower part of that K. And mm -hmm. I, I hope that our dysfunctional Congress can maybe do something. I mean, CARES Act was a great thing that did get done because had it not, who knows what would have happened? I mean, um, in March, things were going crazy in terms of 
the market until the Fed stepped in with, you know, stimulus infinity, um, you know, QE infinity, and, and then CARES got passed. It was just who knew where the bottom would be. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah, it's helped, but there's a lot of people who are still hurting. And you know, I'm typically a pretty small government kind of person. But when you shut things down and you literally have a pandemic that you're going to say you can't operate your business, you need to make those people right. The restaurateurs who've sunk their life work, maybe generations of work into building a business, a family business in Manhattan, for example. And now if you're going to do a complete lockdown now, they've already gotten crushed once. And then it's like, are you really going to be able to come back from that without some sort of assistance? Um, it, it's a really difficult situation. I hope that people will stop being so petty. Yeah, the lack of empathy is certainly pretty disturbing. It's something that we've commented on a lot is just how it's kind of like, oh, we'll just shut it down for a little bit, you know, and, and leave it alone. And then, uh, then it'll be fine after that. And it just doesn't. Yeah. It's like, uh, maybe the right yeah, thing to do was pretty, to shut it down, but you can't do that in isolation of also addressing the reality that you have cash coming in and cash going out. And if you've shut down cash coming in, that doesn't shut down cash going out and you have to make those people mm. right. So yeah, no easy Absolutely. answers. Well, let's mm. call it a day. Um, Rod Oldsman, Thank you once again, man. It's been awesome. Um, if any of our listeners want to follow Rod, uh, your Twitter handle is it at Rod Osman? Bingo. Yep. And I go, I go by, uh, <laughs> I go by Uberkicks11 on all other areas on the web. Uh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Highly recommend Actually, checking um, it out. I, it uh, it convinced me. <laughs> And now I look would, where I am. Just like so, I'm sorry as well. While we're here, um, Uber kicks eleven. Like I, I love how um, I love the differentiation in tone between your posts on your Twitter, which has your real name attached to it, and Uber kicks on Wall Street bets. Um, yeah, was, so there's a spectrum. Nice. There's there's the Twitter, which is I'm a professional human who, yeah, who uses good you know good language. <laughs> Then it goes to, you know, stock twits is in the middle, maybe. Uh, and then Wall Street yeah. bets, let's just not even discuss. Just, so you have to go look yeah. at it. Absolute debauchery. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. So awesome. we'll, um, we'll, sh- we'll share a link to your, um, your Twitter handle in the show notes for this episode as well. Um, and um, Rog, we might even get you to send us some, uh, some links to some of yeah. what you think are your more informative posts. And we'll share those as well. So... Uh, anyone listening can go right to the source and get the juice for themselves. So uh, if you want to, remember you can sign up to uh, support us on Patreon um, to get access to that monthly bonus episode, which we're going to be dropping in the last week of December. Uh, It's five bucks a month to um, support your boys and uh, give us some more coin to blow on GME stocks. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We're going to use it responsibly, um, I think. So, yeah, we're going to put it on Tesla. <laughs> so, <yeah>. um, <laughs> if you want to hit us up on social media, we're on Instagram at Modern Guilt Pod. You can email us thoughts and questions, modernguiltpod at gmail.com. Other than that, stay safe. Uh, I hope everyone has a lovely week. Uh, any more thoughts, Damon? No. All right. That's it. Let's call it. Peace. Peace Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Thanks.